Hey everybody, this is Whitney Terrell. This is the second of two fiction nonfiction podcast episodes that my co-host Sugi and I recorded live at the Miami Book Fair. A couple notes. The sound setup in the room where we recorded wasn't quite perfect. We've done our best to clean up the audio for you. We also did this recording on November 17th, and the episode involves a lot of discussion of the NFL, so just be aware. The NFL being the NFL, there have already been a number of controversies and disasters since we recorded this episode. But that's why we did this episode, and it's why we think these three authors and their excellent books and their viewpoints only become more and more relevant with each passing day. So, all you sports fans and sports critics out there, enjoy. Fiction podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Bibi Ganesh Anandan, also known as Suki, the author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. This time, the tackling in our intro is literal. We have two authors who are focused on football and a third who's looking at activism across all professional sports, including football. So I think we can look forward to a lot of talking about football in this episode. I know this makes you so sad. You're so disappointed right I am, now. I am a little worried, Sugi. I'm worried, and you should be too. Who's your favorite team? I'm in a complex relationship with the Patriots. <laughs> but I know that you're a Kansas City fan. This is why I'm worried. <laughs> and they're nine and one. So what do you have to be worried about? These guests. I've been reading their books, which are excellent, and which deal with some very serious issues I'm totally psyched to discuss. But in the process, I've learned some troubling things about the authors themselves. Let's just welcome them to the show, and I'll show you what I mean. Mark Leibovich is the chief national correspondent for the New York Times Magazine, as you just heard. He's won a National Magazine Award for Profile Writing. He's the author of three previous books, including This Town, a New York Times bestseller, and the book we're here to talk about today, Big Game, The NFL in Dangerous Times. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Um, so, uh, should I is this, should I, can you hear me? They yeah. So I guess the applause will, applause will start now. I mean, I, I like the Patriots. I grew up watching them. I grew up in New England. But I will say that I'm one of the good ones. Um, I try to be, like all Patriots fans, gracious and, and humble. And, um, since I'm in Miami, um, I will say that, like, in the spirit of graciousness, I think it's a day for all of us to come together and achieve common ground around our hatred of the Jets. <laughs> All right, I can work with that. Right. I can do that. Start with that, right? Etan <laughs> um, Thomas played nine seasons in the NBA, primarily with the Washington Wizards, and uh, I'm from Maryland, so that makes me happy. He's the author of a book of poetry and autobiography, and has written for the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, CNN, and ESPN. His most recent book, which we're discussing today, is "We Matter: Athletes and Activism." Welcome, Etan. Do you have a favorite football team? Well, I kind of root more for players. So, I mean, you know, like here, I, I, I really grew to be a fan of King Stills. Um, oh. you know, did some work with him over the summer. So, always root for him when I see him, but not so much the team, but more players. It's a very, well, that makes me much less worried then. I don't, I'm not even worried <laughs> about you. Uh, now, the next guy, Steve Almond is the author of nine books of fiction and nonfiction, including a New York Times bestseller, Candy Freak, and most recently, Bad Stories, toward a unified, unified theory of how it all came apart. He's also the co-host with Cheryl Strayed of the New York Times Dear Sugars podcast, but he's on this panel to talk about his best-selling book, Against Football, One Fan's Reluctant Manifesto. Steve, who is your team? 
I am uh, in recovery right now. Uh, I was, I guess I am in recovery. We still say I am. Uh, my name's Steve. I'm a Raiders fan. That's what I was afraid of. You guys know the Chiefs and the Raiders do not get along well. We have a big Raiders week. I don't know if the Raiders care about the Chiefs the way the Chiefs care about the Raiders, but we, we have serious problems with the Raiders. So later we'll talk about tribalism, or maybe we'll <laughs> I think Oakland has serious problems with the Raiders right now. So. Yeah, how are they going to do? And what's going to happen in Vegas if they're going to be there? How's that? What 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 happens? Um, I predict that, that be? Uh, a bunch of wealthy people will make a lot of money. Nah, that's probably good. <laughs> that's that's about right. <laughs> So um, maybe we can talk about, start off by talking a little bit about big game. And Mark, in big game, you, you wonder if we've reached something you term peak football, uh, tribalism, for a whole host of reasons, including player protests and concussions, which Atan and Steve cover in depth. Could you explain that term, peak football, and talk about why you, a political writer, would care at all about the fate of the NFL, or for that matter, why we all do care? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the short answer is I needed a break from politics. I mean, my, my focus at the Times Magazine, living in DC, has been national politics, which is what I've been covering for about you know, 17, 18 years now. The last few elections, especially the last one, kind of took a lot out of me, and I just needed a break. And I also saw a lot of echoes between the reality show that, that politics had become with the reality show that football had become. And I'd gotten to know enough players around sports, uh, particularly football, to know that um, this sort of great spectacle of American life that, that certainly the NFL had become um, was maybe not sustainable. And it just seemed to be a world that was moving really, really fast. And, you know, 77 of the top 100 top-rated TV shows in America last year were football games. Um, the last month, the top, probably 14 of the top 15 top-rated TV programs in America were all football games. And the fact is, the NFL is like, you know, this huge sort of cartel of drug dealers. And we have this nation, we're this nation of addicts at this point. I am an addict, and I have been an addict. But I also, as a political writer, have always sort of stepped back and tried to focus on the anthropology of it, the sort of cultural impact of these things. And also, as someone who's written a lot of profiles, I kind of, my, my gateway drug into this was getting to know Tom Brady, then getting to know Roger Goodell for the commissioner of the NFL for, for the New York Times Magazine. And that kind of opened my eyes to the fact that I want to get to know these people more. I mean, these are this is a very closed world. I mean, the billionaires who, who run this cartel, the people in New York, the, the, a lot of the star players. I mean, this just looked like a circus that I wanted to get closer to. So that became my segue in, and, and like four years later, it became kind of a safari, and this is the result of that. So for the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to channel the aggressively unwoke thoughts of a certain afternoon talk show host in my hometown of Kansas City. Yeah. And uh, a guy who grew up in a very segregated, all-white part of Kansas City and says things like he can't support Colin Kaepernick because he once wore a Fidel Castro t-shirt. We all know this guy, right? We've listened to him on the radio. Um, and what this guy would say to your idea about peak football is that all this fretting is nonsense because of Patrick Mahomes. Ratings are up again. The game is healthy. Kaepernick sparked protests against police brutality, which you discussed so powerfully in your book, Etan. 
are in the past. It's business as usual. What would you say to that? As far as it being business as usual? Yeah. Well, I mean, the business isn't, hasn't stopped. I mean, you know, athletes using their voices, you know, it's not something that's going to just, just stop. Kaepernick made a, did a great job of making a lot of mainstream America feel uncomfortable. And they didn't want to deal with the, the topic that he brought at hand. So much so that they um, completely changed his reasons that he gave specifically as to why he was taking the knee and made it about something else. And, you know, you, you saw what happened from that was a lot of different athletes are using their voices to speak out on different things. And what I wanted to do with, with my book was to start to interview some of these athletes and get more in-depth as to why. You know, you always heard the report that this athlete took a knee, this athlete wore a shirt, this athlete spoke out after this, but, but I didn't see the follow-up reports as to why it was so important to this athlete to be able to use his voice and speak out on this particular issue yeah. at this particular time, and that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. So I you know, talked to Eric Reed, I spoke to um, Dwayne Wade, you know, right here from Miami Heat, and he you know, went to detail about why he spoke out after Trayvon Martin was killed. You know, talked to Carmelo Anthony and Russell Westbrook and all these different athletes. And then right now there's this resurgence of athlete activism that was a little bit, you know, missing for a little while from, from sports. Um, you had a time in the 60s, and I, I interviewed Bill Russell and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and, you know, those, those athletes who are the pioneers from the 60s, like John Carlos. But then you had a little bit of a quiet period, like in the 90s, and you know what I mean, where not a lot of athletes were speaking. Now you see yeah. this resurgence. And I wanted to get to the, to the reason as to why. A lot of it, you know, goes to what's going on in current society with police brutality, with racism, with systemic oppression, and the things that Kaepernick pretty much has laid out. So, you know, when, when you're having this conversation, you're having a strong reaction from different people who don't want to hear athletes talking about these topics. And you're, that's when you hear the shut up and play, stay in your lane, shut up and dribble. You know what I mean? Don't, don't go into these areas, just stick to what you're doing. Yeah. Well, I like that. Your book is like, because that's what that host would always say. I'd be, I'd be jogging and he would start saying like, well, I don't know what these, these, these football people are protesting about. I, they don't, they're not saying it. I'm like, well, yes, they are. Right. You got to look, you know, but you got to try to hear. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of people weren't trying to hear. Yeah. But then a lot of people, it, they made, he, he made them uncomfortable. You know, you heard a lot of the times, you know, we'll do that on your own time. You know, and it's like, well, if you do it on own time, nobody's going to see it. The whole point of protest is to make people uncomfortable so everybody can see it. Right. right. Um, but that's just people who don't want to hear your message. And, and you know, one of the things that we've, I've heard, you know, speaking at different universities and things like that and getting the feedback from the different audience is, you know, asking what is going to come of this? You know what I mean? Like, what is the reason? Like, why, why do you feel that this needs to be heard? And it's, and it's that many people don't know. And hearing an athlete talk about personal issues uh, that they've had with the police makes it resonate more with mainstream America because they, they love that athlete. So, you know, even in dealing with Dwayne Wade here with the, with the Trevor Martin incident, a lot of people, and this is from Javaris Fulton, who's Dwayne Wade's brother, said a lot of people paid attention to this, to this, to this topic and, and everything that happened just because LeBron James and Dwayne Wade said no other reason. And Jabari said, you know, if it weren't for athletes using their voices, many people wouldn't know his brother's name. I think that's just a, a powerful and, and sad statement of where we are in society. It's really helpful to hear you talk about that long history, and I'm so happy that athletes now are not, quote-unquote, staying in their lane. Uh, even though, you know, the games, the games get played, things go on. Um, 
but it's really helpful to hear those comments brought to the surface by these important figures in our culture. And as the NFL continues about its business, the other thing, um, and Steve, I'm going to turn to you now, that keeps going on are concussions. And uh, your book came out in 2014. I'm going to assume you haven't abandoned your decision to stop watching football no matter how many yards Patrick Mahomes throws for. So there's also fans protesting in their way. Can you talk to our listeners and our audience a little bit about how you came to that moment? Well, um, basically, when you're addicted to something that you recognize as morally indefensible, one way of forcing yourself to walk away from something you love is by writing a book. <laughs> it's manifest moral corruptions on a zillion different levels, and then you kind of have to stick to it. You know, and, and that's pretty much what it took. I mean, I loved watching football. The first early chapters of Against Football are uh, an attempt to explain why the game is so beautiful, why it's so dramatically satisfying. Uh, it, it's quite miraculous. You know, the physical genius is a thing to behold. And everybody wishes to be able to invent miracles with their body. And their you know, athletes do it right before our eyes. And the game of football is strategically dense and it's ornate and has this primal violent component to it, but it's also quite graceful and poetic. And just as a narrative, like as a storyteller, it has the biggest swings in momentum. Like there's lots of reasons people love football. And I didn't want to write a book that was saying, oh, football's brutish and dumb and we should get rid of it. I was more like, oh my God, I love this thing. But when I check under the hood, and I'm sure Mark can relate to this because that's a lot of what he does in his reporting. So check out the politics. It's just morally rotten. If my five-year-old, you know, daughter looks at a football game, her first question is, "Where are the female players? Where are the girls?" And I have to point to the minimum wage paid bouncing breasts on the sideline and say, "Actually, that's your role model." So, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, masculine. You know, to be a man or to be in, in the, in the, to be effective. As a football player, you have to suppress your empathy to, just to do your job. Uh, and that's before you get to the, I think, the attitudes around masculinity, around race, uh, the sort of uh, toxic hypercapitalism, the uh, monopoly system that the NFL industry, uh, the football industry. And that's before you get to the fact that it is a workplace where a third of the players are going to wind up with brain damage. And uh, the, fame, the reason that they play the game, in large part, is because of fans like me, because that's what creates the incentive system. The incentives in football, all sports, but football in particular, are really simple. Winning and money, and not in that order. That's it. And if you kind of boil down capitalism, those are the incentives. And those are real incentives, and they're powerful, but they're really morally corrosive. So that seems similar, I mean... I, actually, I think you might have been on with this talk show host that I'm thinking of, although I'm not, we'll not, we'll not add him on the air. It could have been, there's one before him who I like a lot, and then there's this other guy who I argue with a lot in my mind. But he <laughs> might say to you, here's my chance to argue with him. He might say to you, uh, haven't the league's new rules on helmet-helmet collisions and concussion protocol and all this other stuff, you know, how you can sack the quarterback, some of them instigated by critics like you? I mean, they've been taking place over the last, you know, two or three years. Made the game safer? Have we rescued the game in the way that, as you describe in your book, Theodore Roosevelt tried to do in 1904? Yeah, um, so there's a suitcase that all fans carry around. It's a suitcase, and maybe all people. It's full of rationalization. <laughs> Uh, I carried it around for 40 years, and uh, it grows heavier as you relieve yourself of, the, of your moral ignorance. Um, and so it's just wrong to say that 
football has a concussion problem. And it's even wrong to say that it has a violence problem. It has a physics and physiology problem. That's just it. Uh, you know, uh, mass times acceleration equals force. Uh, and so you have bigger and stronger players moving at greater speeds and slamming into one another. And um, the physiology part of it is the brain is a soft organ encased in a hard shell. Uh, and so it's not really the problem with concussions. That's a, a dodge. It's a way of avoiding the real issue. The problem is that there are maybe 1,500 sub-concussive events that a football player at any level exposes themselves to. And those are like small car accidents that take place inside the helmet, and they lead to chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And the league itself has now conceded in their filings in this huge lawsuit that former players filed that they expect up to 30% of their players to experience some form of CTE. So now take a tiny step back and ask yourself if there's any other workplace in the United States where just in the course of doing your job, it would be okay for almost a third of the participants to wind up with brain damage. So that's my role, just to be the big bummer. Just when the Chiefs were getting good. So I think one of the things that we're getting at a little bit here in, in all of these answers are the power relationships between owners and players and fans. And Mark, you had amazing access in the reporting of your book. And as a result, you have some jaw-dropping descriptions of the privileges afforded for the most part white, male, and aging club of NFL owners. Could you talk to us a little bit about what those owners are like and maybe read us a passage from your visit to the NFL owners meetings? Uh, yeah. I brought a book for you. Copy the book. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say most of them are not aging. Many of them are just aged. I mean, this is like, I mean, not to like be not to be ageist here, but I mean, you know, that's what the middle age is like in all their seventies or so. I mean, maybe not, but no. Look, I mean, the the fact is, and this sort of goes to one of the earlier points that was made. Um, I mean, I, I think it's great that players are using their voices, but the fact is, you know, Colin Kaepernick lost his job. Um, you know, Eric Reed, you know, lost his job for a while. Um, I mean, one of the people I got to know in the course of reporting this is a guy named Martellus Bennett, who played 11 years in the league. Um, and I did his, he has a podcast in LA now. And, and he used to, he played, um, you know, in a couple of years at the end, he would raise his fist and during the national anthem. And he got all kinds of like terrible, you know, racial, racist abuse, you know, by the fans when he was, in, um, he was playing for Green Bay at the time. But a lot of his, African-American teammates were saying, you know, we'd like to do that too, but it's a terrible career move. And he would say, well, you know, I've been in the league 11 years, you know, I have a three, I just signed a three-year contract, I'll do it for all of us. So, I mean, I do think it's important, and, you know, obviously my reality here is the, the NFL, and I think the NBA does a much better job from what I can see. Um, but, you know, the NFL does want football to be an escape. They want people not to think about hard truths, about medical science, about politics about things like you know police brutality and that sort of so um so you've actually bracketed. helpefully bracketed, bracketed what you want me to read okay this is good <laughs> i was gonna think what would i read here all right so this was um this the scene here is at the boca raton um club and resorts which is the site of an nfl owners meeting in march of 2016 um it was my first NFL owners meeting. I met a bunch of them, and many of them were bitching about the fact that the owners meeting was not at the Breakers in Palm Beach, because that would not do, right? I mean, and look, this looked pretty good to me. The Boca was five-star, I mean, you know, golf carts going around. Anyway, so this was like one of my first indications that this was not, um, 
you know, my normal kind of journalism convention. Actually, not that I go to those, but I don't even think there are those. But anyway, so this is the scene that took place there. Um, it was a very rough patch for the league. Um, Roger Goodell seemed to be in hot water. There was all this controversy about what teams got to move to L.A. Owners were fighting with each other. And um, so this is, this is me sort of pulling into this. Um, and so when the owners call themselves the membership. That's like the sort of mob-like term they all have for each other. It's the 32 people, I mean, almost all of the men, every single one of them white except for the owner of the Jacksonville Jaguars, Shad Khan, who was born in Pakistan. Um, and that is, you know, they are members of the club. And they're all, you know, they, they get to own this thing. The rest of the membership rolled into the resort by town car and wheelchair. By league convention, they must always be referred to as Mr. So-and-so, befitting their status and genders. Among the rare female owners of the membership is a widow, the Detroit Lions' then 90-year-old uh, Martha Firestone Ford, wife of the team's late owner, William Clay Ford. Um, the first batch of arrivals resembled one of those reunions of ancient World War II squadrons, minus the flags and applause. New Orleans Saints owner Tom Benson, then 88, was wheeled through the front entrance with a big grin on his face, belying the battles he had fought over the last few years with the league and more recently with his children in court over control of the Saints, among other toys. Jerry Jones, who entered wearing dark, he's the Dallas Cowboys owner, wearing dark aviator glasses, was nearly chop-blocked by a pair of runaway kids. That was another problem with the resort. There were too many kids running around. Just wouldn't do it. He was holding a tumbler of something, never just a glass with Jerry, always a tumbler, even if it's milk, which it rarely is. He loves, quote, to have a big old time and can be irresistibly fun with a big taste for scotch, a gleam in his icy aqua eyes, and a penchant for circuitous lectures that we will often stumble over but that will still make a strange bit of sense sometimes. When I asked Jones why the NFL could hum along despite the perennial crises it faces, Jones launched into something he once heard from a friend who owned a chain of Howard Johnson's restaurants. He asked his friend from Ho how Hojo's could keep the taste and flavor of the food so consistent from franchise to franchise. The answer, intensity. Quote, if something is supposed to be cold, make it as cold as hot ice, Jones said. If it's supposed to be hot, have it burn the roof of your mouth. Intensity covers up the frailty in the taste and the preparation. Thus, he concluded, the hot intensity and drama of football can obscure the dangers and degeneracy inherent to the sport. Next down the virtual red carpet was Patriots owner Robert Kraft, strutting through the front entrance in his Nike customized sneakers called Air Force Ones, and silvery, silvery hair stuck straight up in the wind. If you achieve a status, status of influential owner around the league, as Mr. Kraft has with his multiple Lombardi trophies, sexy young girlfriends, and perceived closeness with Roger Goodell. You get called by enhanced names, or better yet, initials. Mr. Kraft was merely Bob Kraft when he bought the team in 1994, but at some point graduated to Robert Kraft and then eventually RKK, at least certain in initiated sectors of Foxborough and 345 Park Avenue. You know you're exalted when you achieve initial status. Tom Brady calls me RKK. I heard Kraft boast to Adam Schefter of ESPN when they passed each other in the hallway. Is RKK good enough for Brady, a fellow Michigan man, Schefter pointed out? Then it's good enough for me. Kraft had been making a big show of still being mad at the league over the endless deflate gate saga. 
He believed Goodell and a group of his bitter rivals were intent on messing with his dynasty, stealing his draft picks, soiling his reputation, and railroading his quarterback. Jealousy and envy are incurable diseases had, diseases had become Kraft's signature refrain. Woody Johnson, owner of the Jets and heir to the Johnson & Johnson fortune, trailed several paces behind Kraft in the lobby, as he had for years in the AFC East. <laughs> I'm very much on message here. I didn't even plan that. Uh, he wore a white Jets, white Jets cap and crooked backpack. Kraft would diagnose Woody Johnson, Woodrow, Woody, Robert Wood Johnson IV with the incurable disease. On the day the league announced its sanctions against the Patriots and Brady, Johnson's wife Suzanne tweeted out a smiley face emoji before deleting it. Even worse was when the Woodman, that's what they call him, <coughs> himself, quote, favorited a tweet calling his own general manager at the time to be fired. Johnson apologized and called the move inadvertent. There is much about the membership that is inadvertent, starting with who gets to join this freakish assembly. They are quite a bunch, old money and new, recovering drug addicts and born-again Christians and Orthodox Jews, uh, sweethearts, criminals, and a fair number of dirty old men. <laughs> they are tycoons of enlarged ego, delusion, and prostate, whose ranks, sorry, whose ranks, ranks include their heir owners like the Maras, Roonies, and Hunts of the Giants, Steelers, and Chiefs, respectively, whose family names conjured league history and muddy field, sideline fedoras, and NFL films. There is also a truck stop operator whose company admitted to defrauding its customers in a $92 million judicial settlement, settlement a duo of New Jersey real estate developers who were forced to pay $84.5 million in compensatory damages, compensatory damages because, according to a judge, they, quote, used organized crime-type activities to fleece their business partners, an energy baron who funded an anti-gay initiative, a real estate giant married to, the, married to a Walmart heiress, tax evaders, etc. One imagines those black felt pictures from the 70s, uh, black felt, you know, black light pictures from the 70s with dogs playing poker around a table. Trails of ex-wives, litigants, estranged children, and fired coaches populate their histories. I could keep going, um, but I won't. So. That is a fantastic passage, also terrifying, but let's give him a round of applause for that at least. Um, Etan, uh, you make a point of calling these people CEOs and not owners for what you say in your book are obvious reasons, which I'm guessing refers to, and tell me if I'm wrong, to the troubling echoes of saying a bunch of old white men like this own a bunch of players, right? Um, could you talk about the way act, the activist players you interview, like Eric Reed, Tori Smith, and Anquan Bolden, think about these owners? Um, when players take a knee, are they also, in a way, protesting the people who own the teams? Um, not at all. They're two no? different things. Okay. I mean, um, you know, I, I was able to interview um, the CEOs from the Washington Wizards, Ted Neosis, and um, Dallas Mavericks, Mark Cuban. And, um, you know, I asked them specifically what they thought about uh, players using their voices and their platforms to speak on different issues, even if they disagree with the issues that they're speaking on. Right. And because that's always, that's the caveat. You know, anybody can be in support of somebody who's saying something they agree with. I, right. I wanted to see what they would think about when, when they say something they disagree with. And they were all very complimentary. They're like, no, they have the right to be able to speak. You know, players have used their voices in the past, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> and, um, you know, I interviewed Commissioner. Adam Silver for the NBA and wanted to ask him the same thing. Um, and he said, he said, talked about as well the, the, the power of the athlete voice and how 
NBA players in the past, like Bill Russell and Kareem, like use their positions and their platforms. Uh, I wanted to interview some people in the NFL. I uh, wanted to interview Jerry Jones, uh, Dan Snyder, Roger Goodell, but they didn't return my calls. There's uh, a big difference I, between the NFL and the NBA. There's a huge difference. You know? I wanted to interview them um, because I wanted to, to examine that difference and to see why there was such a big difference from the NBA and the NFL. I mean, it really is night and day. There's a – you talked uh, – um, in one of your interviews, and I'm, I'm forgetting, pardon me for forgetting who it was, like one of the people you were talking to, I think it was Eric Dyson, was talking about that the NBA is about hierarchy and structure and organization. And the NBA, the game itself is more fluid and, and it doesn't emphasize hierarchy in the same way. That seems to be part of the deal. I mean, I know that also, you know, like it's there's a military part to the football, which Steve talks about, right? And that's not present in basketball. None of the military metaphors, you know, apply to basketball. Well, that wasn't always present in the NFL. Yeah, that was of just, course. That was just recently. And, yeah. And, you know, looking at the, the background, doing the research of it, the reason why you see all the militarism in the NFL is because of the contract that they had with the, you know, the Secretary of Defense. And, 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 <laughs> yeah, and right. that's, that's the reason. No, none of that happened before. You know, players weren't required to. Yo, correct me if I'm wrong here. No, no, no. This was a news item. Yeah, players weren't required to stand out there for the national anthem and play. They didn't have all of that, and then they had the they had like a deal. It was an advertising, and and they and they they paid the NFL in order to be able to advertise the the military. Then you started seeing all of these things happen. So that's why they're like, well, we got to keep this deal right. Right. You just didn't have that in the NBA, you know. And it's a it's an interesting aspect that a lot of people don't know about. But I, I think that in, in all, you know, people started getting lost in what exactly was the original message that Kaepernick and the NFL players were, were trying to bring to the public. It wasn't about the military. It wasn't about the veterans. I know. That, that's that the thing that's so fascinating to, to go to the military. That's the NFL's default thing, like right. not just the patriotism part, but the, also the military they're calling up military order, like you shouldn't be stepping out of line in this way. A private doesn't say this to the colonel, right? That kind of deal, it seems like to me. Like well, also, they want to the frame it as far as disrespectful to the military, yeah, yeah. to the veterans. But by bringing up the military as being disrespected, they're also bringing up that idea of hierarchy, it feels to me like they're right. implicitly talking about that. In right, a lot of ways. right. I mean, no matter how many times you, you, you heard Eric Reed and the different players uh, reiterate that this is not about the military. It's not about the veterans. You know what I mean? It's specifically about this, this, and this. Um, and that's the part where, you know, as athletes are using their voices, and, and you said just as, as Kaepernick was, was um, you know, kind of blackballed through the entire league, yeah. um, and Eric Reed was blackballed for a while, but he, he got his job back. They wanted to send a message to everybody else that if you dare step out of line, this too will happen to you. And that's the, the, the message that I wanted to pretty much counter with, with my book is, is to be able to use athletes. Now, of course, basketball is different. NBA is different than NFL. Um, but really to use these stories of these current NBA players to inspire the younger NBA players coming up. You know, I mean, in, in, in the book, I interviewed John Wall. And he talked about um, John Wall is a point guard for the Washington Wizards. Just know everybody. <laughs> All right. So, so, so he talked about watching LeBron James and Carmelo Anthony at the ESPYS, and you know, and how they they 
use that platform to talk about police brutality and, and like kind of like a call to action for everybody to do things in their particular communities and how that was inspiring to him. Now, this is a superstar level player, but he's looking at other athletes and being inspired by them. And that's one of the things that I wanted to do with the book. I wanted to have younger athletes look at these stories of these athletes using their voices, these current athletes in particular, and be inspired by them. That's great. And the idea that there's so many more, and when you aggregate them, you can see that. And I feel like another line of rhetoric that I've often heard, or, or a subtext of this, is the notion that you, know, you should be grateful for your job and your gratitude should manifest as silence. Um, whereas I would think of, you know, if you are grateful for that job, that it might manifest as dissent and critique. Well, one of the things that's interesting is that, you know, that, that ungrateful athlete notion um, is one that is, it's not a new notion. You know, Bill Russell talked about it when I interviewed him and he, he, he said that that's what he heard. And, you know, John Carlos, when he came back, so, so now everybody celebrates the 68 Olympics. They just celebrate it, you know, it's the 50th anniversary, you know, celebrate them for their bravery and everything. But except for back then, that's not the reception that he received. It was the reception of the ungrateful athlete. You know, everybody loved um, Bill Russell. This is Bill Russell saying everybody loved him when, you know, he was winning all the championships in Boston and everything is great. They're dominating. But then he starts talking about racism and segregation and, and calling out different things that he doesn't like. And everybody turns on him. You know what I mean? So much to the point where they broke into his house and like just ransacked everything. They didn't steal anything, but just ransacked everything. You know what I mean? And, you know, spray the N-word on this and defecate it on his bed. Like the most vile things. That, and this is in Boston. This is his home city. Right. So it's that level of once you step out of the line of, you know, we love you for what you do on the court or the field and you say something that we disagree with, then what happens? Right. So so that's the part I, I interviewed. Um. Um, Chris Chris Hayes, and that's the part that he was really intrigued about of the, of the difference from the fandom to to looking at you as an actual person. And a person is going to be able to have different opinions, but sometimes it ruins it for people when um, a person, an athlete who you love and admire, and you want your 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 kids and your grandkids to have a picture on their wall and the jersey and everything like that, you hear that they have an opinion that differs from yours. So then it goes to, can you value somebody's opinion that's different than yours, or would you rather not know it at all? And I'm going to seize on that word you mentioned, value, because Steve before said capitalism. And you know, that seems like some of, the, some of what's going on here as well. You know, all of you in your books, in these relationships of, between bosses and workers, you're, you're led to think about the NFL as a metaphor for capitalism, and you're all talking about capitalism. And Steve, I wonder if we could ask you to read a passage from Against Football about capitalism and Marxism, and then maybe Mark and Atan... You could talk about how your discussion of the economics of football um, is or is not relevant to the issues they address in their books. Okay, bummer time. Um, <laughs> so I'll read a little bit of this. Uh, one of the most persistent myth about the NFL is that because of its revenue sharing system, it is somehow socialist. To quote the writer Chuck Osterman, the reason the NFL is so dominant is because the NFL is basically Marxist. Uh, as noted, NFL owners in large cities agreed to divide TV proceeds equally back in 1962 to create competition, a competitive balance on the field. That's not Marxism. It is, at best, a canny form of market manipulation. The history is far more problematic. In fact, Pete Rozelle signed a TV contract in 1960 on behalf of the entire league, a deal struck down by a federal court as a violation of antitrust law. That membership that Mark was talking about is actually a cartel. Um, it's a violation of our trust laws. Roselle went to Washington and lawmakers obediently passed the Sports Broadcasting Act of 1961, which allowed the NFL and other leagues to circumvent those pesky antitrust rules 
and to sell TV rights collectively to the highest bidder. The law essentially made the NFL a legal monopoly. But just as a thought experiment, let's pretend the NFL really were Marxist. Are you ready? Here's what that would mean. First, there would be no private ownership and therefore no team owners. The teams, though they would represent different cities, would belong to the state. Employees would be paid according to the Marxist edict from each according to his ability to each according to his need. A top quarterback such as Peyton Manning would not be paid $18 million every season. He would be paid based on his needs, let's say $100,000 per year. The worker who laundered his jockstrap or the custodian who mopped the floors of his locker room might be paid just as much as Peyton Manning. Perhaps more if he had greater needs, say a lot of children or sick parents. Star athletes could still ostensibly earn huge sums in endorsement deals from private industry, though the league would have to decide whether these payments violated its Marxist tenets. Commissioner Goodell would not receive a compensation package of $42.2 million, as he did in 2012, nor would his deputies earn millions of dollars. In fact, one of the most fascinating questions that arises from a truly Marxist NFL would be the question of what to do with the staggering profits, which would no longer be divide, divvied up by a cobble of geriatric magnates or funneled to a pack of vainglorious athletes. Sorry, not calling them vainglorious. <laughs> I do like having these texts, and I, I, at least we could see the magnates since we had <laughs> right, from Marx exactly. reading. We could safely assume that its operating costs would be a fraction of the nearly $10 billion the NFL is projected to earn this season. The balance, let's say $9.5 billion, would be available for redistribution to societal needs such as early education, medical and renewable energy research, intervention for at-risk populations. Fans would be in the strange position of justifying their support of pro football by pointing to all these good works. <laughs> an audacious idea. A Marxist NFL in which salaries were no longer grossly inflated by our blessed free market might spur other felicitous outcomes as well. Players could choose to join clubs in the cities or states where they actually grew up. With obscene economic incentives removed, players and fans might experience the sport as a purer form of meritocracy. As with the NCAA t uh, basketball tournament, competition would hinge on team and regional pride rather than in individual earning power, there would no longer be, uh, there would be no more parasitic entourages or predatory agents, and almost certainly athletes would make more sensible decisions regarding their own health. Thank you. Sure. So we started a little late. We want to make sure to leave time for questions. I'm going to ask Mark to respond to this because he talks a lot about economics in his book. And then we'd like to have uh, Eitan uh, read, and then we'll have questions. Yeah, fire uh, away. What uh, does that bring to your mind in terms of the reporting you did, being around the owners, thinking about the economics of football, as you, which you also discuss in your book? Well, yeah. I mean, these are. I mean, my my basic takeaway from this this reporting is that the game I think will survive because it's a great game and, and there's a monopoly right now and they have this stranglehold on the American imagination. But I, I do think that the league does suffer from um, longer term, a lack of longer term thinking. And I mean, look, these are people who are making tons of money. They are all billionaires, the people who own it. And they're not going to that golden goose is not going to die in their lifetimes or their kids' lifetimes or their kids' lifetime. Now, they're all in court fighting each other in many ways, intra-family. But, um, you know, you do sort of wonder, and I, and I do think that this becomes very political after a while. I mean, 
Uh, I mean, one very basic difference in the two leagues, if we're talking about the NBA and the yeah. NFL, is, um, I mean, two weeks ago, okay, so there was this horrible shooting in Ventura, California. Okay, within a couple days, I think the Lakers and I think the Clippers, too, and whoever was playing them wore these enough T-shirts, which, you know, it's, it's a gun control slogan. It's like, you know, let's, like, end gun violence, Okay. If that were to happen in the NFL, I mean, the owners or the league would flip out immediately because they would not be, they would be worried about flipping out the, the you know, the NRA, you know, gun owner types who are very, you know, it's a very conservative fan base in many ways, much more so than the NBA. But that's a great example of the league and the Lakers and the Clippers in this case and whoever they're playing, not only just like supporting their community and supporting players who wanted to make a statement around the community, but, but also taking a political stand. And I mean, I, I think, I remember the, the week this book came out in early September, it was the first week of the NFL season. Uh, everyone was like, okay, doom, you know, Trump was, you know, going after the league. Yeah. There was, you know, the first Thursday night game got really low ratings. Yeah. There was all this. And then um, Nike, you know, announces that they're going to make Colin Kaepernick its national spokesperson. And there was all this talk, literally on the day my book came out, that like, oh, this is going to just kill, like, the, the league and people are going to boycott and people are going to stop buying Nike. And, you know, Nike's stock went down, like, that morning and Trump went after Nike and everything. And, and basically Nike made a choice. They said, you know what, this is a very divided culture right now, but I'm sort of definitely going to bet on the sort of younger, wealthier, better educated sort of people that we want to buy Nike shoes, okay? And they made a choice. They made a political statement. You can do it for, you know, maybe they're as opportunistic as any other big marketing organ would be, right? But um, they made an economic choice. It seems to have paid off for them if you look at the last few months. And the thing about the league, the NFL, is this is a very, very, very risk-averse league. They are afraid of their own shadow. They would never make a choice <laughs> like that. And they want to keep everybody. And the cultural left has always been much more cynical about the NFL than the cultural right. I mean, they have thought, you know, they've distrusted football for its violence, for its over-the-top patriotism, for its sort of military uh, sort of reverence. And one of the things that Donald Trump has done is he sort of turned the right wing critique against football. Like football is just this 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 haven of political correctness. It's been sissified. I mean, there was this great line that Trump used, a great line. I mean, right around um, before Colin Kaepernick ever started kneeling, he said, you know, there are too many penalty flags. You know, there's just too many people too many rules and regulations. And football Trump said this at a rally in Nevada right after a really nasty playoff game between the Steelers and the Bengals where there was all kinds of personal fouls and bad fan behavior. and It was a pretty, it was a disgraceful game according to the announcers in the league. But Trump said it was a disgrace because there were too many flags and he said football has gone soft and America has gone soft. And that was very much I think a, a template for the make America great again image coming from the right. So football, I mean a couple of years ago, right when I was wrapping up this book, was getting it from all sides. But yeah. the fact is they just they, they just want to sort of hide and pretend that we can just treat this as an escape and no one will pay any attention to what any of these players are thinking or protesting or anything going on inside the line. So, Steve, that made you sit up and say something. Could you make it short, though, because we want to yeah. make sure we get to... Just that, that phrase of if football's gone soft like America's, America's gone soft. Every time uh, Trump uh, accuses somebody of something, it's also a confession. 
And that's his confession to his erectile dysfunction. I'm, not, I'm saying that not in jest. I think this was a kind of Viagra election. This was about, about wounded masculinity and a lot of the reason that the fan base of the NFL is um, so conservative is because I think they get off on watching uh, uh, sort of violence. They get off on watching other people uh, enact their aggression, and they get off, frankly, on a sense of having dominion over and control over young, strong, predominantly athletes of color. I think there's a real racial component to it that's very corrosive, and just even the term owners, we're looking at the optics of the, of the combine, where they make mostly African-American players jump, and how high can you jump? And they're practically at the point of checking their teeth. And it's just, it's one of the things that drove me away from football. When you really look at it straight in the face, there are all these dynamics that are just too disturbing. You just plug too much into a worldview that um, is not just amoral, but actually immoral. So the very first episode of our podcast, a little more than a year ago, was about Colin Kaepernick's protests. And we had a, veter uh, a writer who's a veteran, Matt Gallagher, and the novelist Britt Bennett, who wrote The Mothers on our show. And we opened the show just by going through the statistics of the number of unarmed black men who'd been killed by police in 2015, 16, and 17. It doesn't really matter what Whitstone talk show host thinks about Colin Kaepernick. Those numbers are undeniable. And Etan, you helped to personalize those statistics by interviewing the surviving relatives of victims like Philando Castile. Um, I'd I live in Minneapolis. Um, could you talk about doing those interviews and maybe read from one of them? Yeah, those, those were probably the, you know, not probably, but definitely the most difficult interviews I've ever had to do in my life. Um, now, I'm, I'm interviewing Trevor Martin's brother, and I'm, you know, and he's, you know, getting teary-eyed and as he's talking about his brother and talking about the appreciation that he has for athletes using their voices. You know, I'm, I'm interviewing Eliza Castile. And she's talking about the WNBA players because um, it happened in the summer during their season. And you know, she says, you know, if I could hug every one of them, I would have because they're actually speaking out on my brother's behalf. And you know, at a point in the middle of the interview, she you know kind of broke down and had to stop. And you know, I'm I'm getting misty eyed and everything. Like it's just a tough interview to do. Um, but you, you want me to interview the? I mean, uh, read this part of the interview with um, Emerald, who was Eric Garner's um, daughter. Um, so she said. So we have gone through this very public execution of our father, and we have to see it replayed over and over again on TV. The phones are ringing nonstop because everyone wants to stick a mic in your face, and then all of a sudden they move to the next story, and all you hear is silence. And that silence can be torturous. People don't understand hearing voices tell you to do something bad or that nobody cares about you, and you should slit your own wrist or your own throat, that your life and your father's life doesn't matter. And it's important and doesn't mean anything, and neither does yours. People don't see that. So what happens the next time we are confronted with the police? Some are shell-shocked and can't move. Some are angry, some want to lash out. Some break down crying every time they hear a siren. People don't know that side. They see that we are awarded some settlement, but don't take into account that lawyers cost money, courts cost money, and it's by the hour. And the city doesn't always pay when they, they announce that they have paid. But even when you don't get it, when you do get it, uh, so much of it is taken before it even gets to you. Now, that's one part I didn't know when I was interviewing them. Um, you know, I guess I just didn't think about it, that every time you see somebody make a statement or a lawyer, that's, they're paid by the hour. So most of the money they don't even see. Um, but even when you do get it, so much is taken away from you. Um, and in, in the meantime, you have to live. You have to go to work. I can hardly leave my house. So most of us have to either 
do the school year over or lose our jobs. Tamir Rice's sister missed like 100 days of school a year or the next year after her brother was killed. Why? Because her brother was killed. I don't want anyone to feel alone and have to go through uh, that without some type of support. Sometimes people just need someone to talk to or they want to yell and scream or they want to go into a quiet place and cry and have someone to allow them to cry and then be there for them for support. So then I asked her, you know, um, I said, and now you're comfortable speaking. Uh, Tiffany Crutcher, who had her brother Terrence Crutcher taken away from her, um, said that she wasn't really comfortable before speaking, and now she is. And Javaris Bolton, who doesn't really like speaking at all, now sees his powerful voice. And I asked her to talk about seeing the reactions from people hearing her speak. And uh, she said she started to hear the feedback and, and people genuinely asking me how I am doing, how I'm feeling, how I'm coping, and what I'm doing now. Javaris is not comfortable speaking at all, prefers to stay in the background. His mother speaks, and that's why they have the mothers of the movement. And what they do is powerful. What I want to do is take, is to take what they are doing and do it for the children, the young people. Javaris will never have Trayvon back. And your, and your siblings is sometimes your best friend. They are the people where you don't even have to speak and they just know what you're thinking. You can finish their sentences for you. You are protective of them. Y'all have conversations that nobody else knows about. And he will never get that back. And he lost his little brother who couldn't, he couldn't protect. And that's one of the things. They all are really protective over each other. They have like this bond, which is a, it's a terrible thing to have to bond over. But they all lost loved ones by the police. So what we've done is that we've done these children of the movement um, panel discussions in different places. And it becomes kind of therapeutic for them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it's, it's you know, using the, the, the power of athletes to be able to bring it to them because people want to come and see the actual, you know, the athlete. And we're letting them talk and, and tell their perspectives and things like, like that. And it, it's, it's really, it's showing where, um, you know, a lot of people a lot of times don't like athletes using their voices and tell athletes to stay in their lane. But when you hear people like this that are so thankful for athletes to give them the platform to be able to tell their story to people who otherwise wouldn't listen to their story, you understand why it's important. So we, we can stop there and go through it. Please. Thank you. My name is Paul Fletcher, and my dad is Arthur A. Fletcher, who is chairman of the George Bush, uh, chairman of the Civil Rights Commission, the uh, Washington, D.C. But he, uh, his first Civil Rights Act was to, in, in Topeka, Kansas, Junction City, where Fort Raleigh, Kansas is. He was a top football player for his high school, and they put blacks in the back of the yearbook pictures. And he said to the 12th graders that we're not going to put our picture in the back of the book. If they don't put it alphabetically, we're going to boycott it. So in that year, 1942, before he went off to World War II, there was the day of absence, basically. There were no graduates. You know how hard it is for parents to say, I don't want my child's picture. But because he was a star football player, they were willing to do it. He went on to become the first appointed, politically appointed person in Topeka, Kansas, in the 50s when he was tagged by Fred Hall 
a politician to run the campaign in Topeka, Kansas, and then he became the commissioner of public highways in Kansas. He raised money for Brown versus Board of Education in Topeka, Kansas, and then we got ran out of Kansas. He lost all his jobs and got blackballed. But we can go, when I look at your book, I'm, you know, I'm looking at how important this is for athletes to know that there was a price that every athlete paid for them to play whatever they're playing. So my dad, under the Nixon administration, he got named as the, the father of affirmative action because he put basically the legal jargon into affirmative action. Had he not played football, he would have never, he was the first black to play for the Baltimore Colts. Had he not played football, none of those white constituents that needed him to tell black people to vote for him would have picked him. Right. It's all about politics. Paul Robeson used his voice politically. So I think you might want to expand this more for this new generation because I'm glad to see them finally picking up the torch and carrying it. But we've been carrying it for a long time. Definitely, definitely. Thank you. Much respect to your father and everything that he was able to accomplish. I, I think that telling those stories is something that that you know you, the reason why I knew of the activism of the athletes in the past was just because my mother taught me. You know what I mean? But it's it's up to the old generation to teach the younger generation because it's not something they're going to be taught in school. It's just not that's not going to be a part of it. So you know, one of the things that you know I wanted to have, have them hear from Bill Russell and hear from Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and John Carlos and everything that they had to go through and sacrifice for athletes to be able to speak so freely now, you know, because there, there was a price, and a lot of them have paid that price. Definitely agree. We're going to fit in a couple questions, but we are over time, so make them quick, uh, to I, the point. George Volpe, I hate the Jets. Mark, when I was <laughs> nine years old during the Mexico Olympics, I remember thinking, what's up? But now people have Google, so when they have questions, oh, what are they protesting? Do you think they're just brainwashed by Trump and Fox News? They don't want to bother Googling to know what Kenny Stills is sitting for? Number two, you mentioned something about, uh, hey, I got my contract, I can protest. But you're also saying NBA players are more liberal. They have guaranteed contracts. Why aren't they protesting more? Steve, college, if you only play college and no football, and there are concussion issues there, of course, they don't have a union. So when they have to play triple quadruple overtime, an extra hour, too bad on them. Thanks. <laughs> Lightning round. Yeah. Okay, right. fire away, fellas. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. Kim Hill. Um, who, who, no, wait, no, no, who, answer, uh, answer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I would just, uh, let's see. Uh, uh, what was the? Google. Oh, yeah, Google. Yeah, look, I think the vast majority of people who are watching football don't care enough to Google it. I mean, I think they just like, think, look, a lot of the people who last year were done with football uh, over something that they felt slighted by or misunderstood were, were by the time the playoffs rolled around, you know, probably jumping up and down. But for them to ask what's up, all it takes is five seconds instead of just parroting what Trump Yes, right. but they don't want to know what's up. That's they don't, they, it's just, you know, yeah. yeah. Just a quick thing on the college, since you mentioned college, but of course, the, the brain isn't aware of whether it's pro or college, and plenty of people are playing football for like 15 years before they even get to the pros. The pros is just where a very tiny percentage get paid a huge amount of money. But one of the things I write about against football that I think is important to think about is the way in which um, our educational system is distorted. If I say University of Miami, or I say Alabama, you don't, or Michigan, you don't think about a book, or a classroom, or a teacher, or the transmission of ideas, or the life of the mind. You think about a football team. 
And, you know, that's objectively your brain on college sports. Uh, I think it's great if people want to pursue that, they should, but in European countries, there isn't a, an adjunct of the football industrial complex isn't our educational system. That's unique to the United States, and it's um, a huge, and as is NCAA, it, they generate a huge amount of profits. Those people might, and the reason that, that athletes are getting scholarships is not because of the content of their character, and not because of the desire to educate them and have them go out to the world and be social workers and scientists and researchers. It's because they're able to play a game that we find entertaining. And, you know, that's a cynical arrangement because it's not saying we're going to invest in every kid because every kid deserves to live in a community where there are good schools and where there is economic opportunity and we support families and provide a livable wage. That's actually progress. When we do things like, and I know this from living in Miami when the Miami Arena was built, what was the myth that we spun about that? Oh, well, that's going to uh, cause an economic renaissance in Overtown. No. Okay? And it's just, it's nonsense. It's a fairy tale. There are real ways that you can invest the $80 million that were spent to build that pink elephant in the community that actually needed it. So it wasn't just of the circus coming to town, but genuine investment in economically vulnerable communities. And as long as we're addicted to sports and the consumption of them, those resources are going to be diverted mostly into the pockets of really rich white guys. All right. Are you saying something? No, no, no. no. Do we okay. We, have, we can do one more question, and, and these guys are going to all sign books. And if you want to talk to them more, what I would suggest you do, being someone who writes books myself, is buy their book and then go and talk to them while they're signing it. They will appreciate that. Please, sir. All right. Yes, James Baldwin once said that to be relatively conscious, you have to be eternally outraged to be an African American. With that in mind, I'm looking at Colin Kaepernick and the narrative that was drawn about him by um, wearing a Castro shirt. We forget that Fidel Castro fought valiantly in Africa for liberation. We forget all these things and his contributions to the struggles in the 60s. So why wouldn't he be wearing a Fidel Castro shirt? Now the thing about this is we are we right here in Miami and young African Americans are running around on the football field with a, a turnover chain per se or whatever. Now Jesse Jackson and all these other people in the 60s were a part of the movement. Old men fight, old men Star Wars, young people fight. Brother Eats, what is going on with our African American football players in college with people like Dabo Sweden and saying, I wouldn't have them here? they were a part of the protest. What can they do to help liberate this game? So, so with college, and we talked a lot about the NCAA um, in, in, in my book, and I think the NCAA is in a, there, I mean, you can write a, you can do a whole book on just the NCAA. I mean, they, they, they make this billion dollar industry, and they don't have to pay any of the workers. You know what I mean? The, the, the actual scholarship that they, that they do provide for them doesn't take anything out of their pocket. You know what I mean? That's not that's not an outside thing that they have to do and that they're losing money by having a scholarship. That's internally. So they make billions of dollars, right? And now, I would, I would say decades ago, um, it might have been a fair trade-off. Maybe in the 60s, you know what I mean? But now, when you're looking at the economics of it, you see exactly how much money is being made. I mean, you have TV contracts. You know, you have you have these huge stadiums. I mean, I, I was a Syracuse carrier dome. I mean, they're getting, you know, I mean, it's, it's just amazing, uh, the amount. But, but what's also amazing is the lip service that they give continuously as to why they shouldn't pay athletes. But it's, it's a matter of nothing is going to change until they're being forced to change. 
you know, I, I interviewed Kareem. Kareem is very outspoken about this. And he says that, you know, the NCAA is basically just, he, he uses very strong language, like robbing players and the things of that nature, uh, but are using. But the, the thing about it is, you know, Mark Emmerich, who is the, the president of the NCAA, he is not going to change because the, the, it's working to his benefit. So, of course, they want players to be as silent as they, as they possibly can to be able to, to speak out against anything. But you saw players such as the Missouri football team mm-hmm. who banded together, and they were able to get something done, but they all had to do it together. So the only time that we saw an entire team do stuff together was the WNBA. And I thought that was just amazing that they did. And I, I, you know, I interviewed Swing Cash and Tamika Catchings and asked them how they was able to do it because you didn't see entire NFL teams, the entire NFL organization um, across the whole league band together around Kaepernick after he did that. It just didn't happen. You know what I mean? So in, so in, in the NCAA, they have to do things together. The Oklahoma football team. You know, they had a racial incident happen on campus. You know, they, they needed something to be done. The entire football team banded together because they know that they're the money makers, right? They know how much they depend on the football team economically, and that's where the power is. And that, and all of this goes back to economics. People are not going to, they're not going to change things because, I mean, we talk about football. Um, nothing, nothing is going to happen or no needles are going to be moved unless it has to deal with economics. And, 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 and I live in D.C., and um, they've been battling for the Washington football team to change its name for, for a long time, right? If sponsors pulled out and said, we are not going to be able to support this until this name is changed, it will be changed the next day. Right. <laughs> the next day. There will be no more discussion to be needed, right? But nothing changes until, so that's what I'm saying is economics makes everything go around. So we're talking about Nike. Nike would not, I mean, and, you know, Nike saw a business opportunity. You know what I mean? They, they identify their target market. They say, you know what? Our target market is not the Make America Great Again crowd. That's not the people who are buying our hoodies and buying our shoes and waiting for the next LeBron to come out. It's the young people. The young people are with Kaepernick. So we're going to go with, with this. That's the only reason. If it was anything else, they would have gone with whatever was economically uh, beneficial to them. Money goes. So, so you have to be able to tap into where it's when, when, when Donald Sterling in the, LA made the racist comment and everybody was in an uproar. They went to the sponsors and, and challenged them to pull out, and that's why the NBA reacted so quickly. Everything is economics. All right, we got to give this room up to the next group. So thank you very much. And that's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. Subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction nonfiction podcast page is listed under the news tab. Have you given us a rating on iTunes? If not, how about sending along a little holiday present and doing that for us? It really helps others find our show. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week um, on Facebook at FNF Pod and on Twitter at FNF Talk. Thanks to the Miami Book Fair, Lisa Pally, and Justin Alvarez at LitHub. And a fond goodbye to this semester's super intern, Stephen Power. Happy reading. <laughs> <laughs>